price drop? Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. The legends are true. Overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. The Bowery Boys episode 209... The Legend of the Waldorf Astoria. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. With the magical story of one of the world's greatest hotels, the Waldorf Astoria, an establishment that traces back to New York's Gilded Age. The story of the Waldorf is rather fabulous, as we'll be talking about today, and it reflects a larger story of the city on the move in the 20th century. This won't merely be a story of lavishly appointed rooms or glamorous evenings at the cocktail bar, although, of course, we're going to have a lot of that in this story. The Waldorf Astoria is perhaps one of the most important privately run businesses in the 20th century due to American politics and international relations. At many points in the story today, what happens within the walls of the Waldorf Astoria eventually influence what happens across the country and even all over the world. As we'll be discussing, uh, the Waldorf has been more than simply a hotel. It's also served as a second home to presidents, uh, to visiting dignitaries from around the world, and to some of the world's most famous entertainers, from Cole Porter to Frank Sinatra to Paris Hilton. (laughs) Oh, yes. We have delightful grand ballrooms filled with celebrities. We've got presidential secrets, even clandestine purchases of priceless religious artifacts. This is a story that has no shortage of drama. Mm -mm. So join us as we check in on the history and the mysteries at the Waldorf Astoria. Well, Tom, here we are at the reservation desk about Mm -hmm. to check in to the Waldorf Astoria. You are the man who knows his hotels. Oh, yes. I do, I do have to say. So right. why don't you... As editor of Euro <laughs> Cheapo, I certainly know about the Waldorf Astoria. Why don't you situate today's story? Well, we're going to be talking about the Waldorf Astoria, a 47-floor luxury Art Deco hotel that's uh, located at 301 Park Avenue. That's between 49th Street and 50th Street. But of course, Greg, this story doesn't start here on 50th Street. It starts about 16 blocks south of here. Right. Now, most of our tale will be at the current Waldorf Astoria. And we'll Mm -hmm. even give you a little bit of a little tour through the hotel a little bit later. 
But the story begins with the original, which sat at the southwest corner of 34th Street and 5th Avenue. I believe many of you may know what building stands there today, but we won't spoil it right now. That's true, but couldn't one say that the story actually starts way downtown at the 300-room Hotel Astor well, that was opened in 1836? Sure, it's true that the Astor family has been in the hotel business from the very beginning since John Jacob Astor, who made his fortune in the fur trade in New York City, invested and started that particular hotel in 1836, and that was located just south of City Hall. The Astor House helped make hotel life a pinnacle of upper-class living, often featuring technological features such as gaslighting, long before most residents in New York had it. About 20 years later, the Fifth Avenue Hotel would open in 1859 on Madison Square, and that, too, was a fashionable place for people to meet and kind of, you know, do some business deals. But even these grand hotels fell out of fashion after the Civil War, And they didn't seem quite respectable enough for these kinds of social gatherings Mm -hmm. that would change by the end of the 19th century. In a way, these fine hotels were kind of markers uh, for the movement of New York up the island. Another metric of this move up north were all these wealthy families and uh, how far up north that they would move and build these lavish mansions. Of course, the Astors did that very same thing. By the mid to late 19th century, there were two factions of Astors that actually lived on a single block, the block between 33rd and 34th Street on 5th Avenue. Two factions of the family? What Were they feuding? Yes. Well, there was there were constant feuds back and forth in these old families, as you can imagine. These two just happened to live right next to each other. On the same block. On the, whole, on the same block. I'll explain what that feud was. Well, I'm sure that it's a myriad of, of feuds, but mm-hmm. one pivotal one involving William Waldorf Astor, mm-hmm. whose house was on 33rd and 5th Avenue, and next door, the house of his aunt, Carolyn Skirmerhorn Astor, or the Mrs. Astor in proper society. These two factions of the family were driven by a rivalry as to who was truly the Ms. Astor in society. So there was a, it was a sort of an upper crust rivalry. Ooh, sounds flaky. And, <laughs> a flaky crust, yes. And these two families between 33rd and 34th on the west side of 5th Avenue. Yes. With mansions right up against each other. Right. Well, in 1893, William Waldorf Astor, whose Uh mansion was on the 33rd Street side, well, he tore that down. He was rarely in New York anyway, and built a hotel. And of course, in 1893, the Waldorf Hotel was the finest and most palatial hotel in New York City. But it's right next to the mansion of his aunt and the other Astor faction. That seems like that might irritate his aunt to have people coming and going right next to her front door. Well, her son, uh, William Waldorf Astor's cousin, John Jacob Astor IV, well, he decided that he was going to get revenge by then ripping down his family mansion and building horse stables. That would, would of course, create a noxious odor and an unpleasant environment for those who entered the Waldorf. Well, instead, the promise of more money, of making money, of course, changed that idea, and eventually, John Jacob Astor IV then built, right next to the Waldorf, a second hotel, the Astoria 
Hotel. It was 16 stories, which was three stories taller than the Waldorf. Between the two of them, because then they would be combined, between the two of them, they had 1,300 rooms and 178 baths. This would make the Waldorf Astoria the largest hotel in the world. Together, the Waldorf Astoria, which opened on November 1st of 1897, came to define the Gilded Age. Now, to quote from a wonderful book, which I think that we've both read many years ago, When the Astors Owned New York by Justin Kaplan, quote, Pleasure Dome and Social Force Theater and Theme Park, the Astor's Great Hotel, the most expensive of its kind, was a place of artistic, mechanical, and sybaritic wonders. Its splendor legitimized the open existence of the American leisure class, unquote. So clearly, uh, the, the family had buried the hatchet here. If they were operating this lavish and well-respected hotel together mm-hmm. as a combined enterprise. I mean, kind of, because it was considered one hotel. It was linked, however, by only one single feature, a marble corridor, which, as legend goes, could be boarded up if for some reason those two factions of the family ever got into a fight again. And what was this corridor called? It was called Peacock Alley. Ah. It was a magnet for high society women to display their newest fashions from Paris. Many consider this to be the first fashion runway. To quote another author named James Remington McCarthy, the women come in their long trains draping the floor, the diamonds and pearls and necklaces gleaming, or their generous feathered hats bobbing up and down as they moved with stately tread along the corridor. So they're just strutting around like peacocks <laughs> yes. uh, up and down this peacock alley. Yeah, in their fabulous fashions of the day. But they're actually going somewhere, too. Yeah, wait, where, were, <laughs> where were they going? Yeah, so there were uh, two uh, society gatherings in the hotel. There were 40 rooms open for public spaces, including debutante balls and banquets, including the main ballroom, which was 95 feet long and three stories high. Uh, many of the rooms have names that are echoed in the current establishment, including the Empire Room, was uh-huh. also located here. You know, Greg, I would argue that the original Waldorf Astoria was linked by more than the Peacock Alley. It was linked <laughs> by a single hyphen in the original name. There was even a Tin Pan Alley song called Meet Me at the Hyphen, mm-hmm. which is kind of cute code for the Waldorf. However, this typographical choice would be changed to a double hyphen Mm -hmm. uh, under the direction of Hilton in 1949. That double hyphen looked a lot to anybody who glanced upon it as an equal sign. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and then it has recently, in 2009, Hilton changed it back to a single hyphen, and sometimes they don't even use it at all. And I'm kind of waiting for like three or four hyphens. (laughs) I want us to get creative here. But now, for those of us who are maybe a little tired of like being obsessed with high society here, the Waldorf Astoria had far more to offer. Much of that had to do with this influential maitre d', Oscar Cherky, often called the Oscar of the Waldorf. The Oscar was born in Switzerland, and he served as the maitre d' of the Waldorf Astoria from 1893 until 1943. 
So he still served, and we'll get to this later in the story, in the new location for more than a decade. Mm -hmm. I I would say that his influence on the New York City hotel life in general cannot be understated, honestly. And and he came out with his own cookbook called The Cookbook by Oscar of the Waldorf, Mm -hmm. which included a number of different recipes, including some old standbys that we have today. Yeah, there's many innovations that he is credited for, or at least influencing or inspiring. For instance, Thousand Island dressing. Yes. Um, The Waldorf salad. A lovely concoction of apples, celery, grapes, and mayo. <laughs> a lot of the things that he created either had mayonnaise or right. or hollandaise sauce. Nuts like, would come later, Greg. Yes. Nuts would be added later. Um, but perhaps the world's most famous brunch food is attributed to him and the Waldorf Astoria. Namely? Arguably, Eggs Benedict. Now, didn't we mention in another recent show that Eggs Benedict actually premiered at Delmonico's? I think that we might have mentioned this in about three or four podcasts. I think a lot of people want to claim credit for Eggs Benedict. But it is true that one particular legend traces it to a customer who came in and wanted a particular collection of ingredients, which then Oscar of the Waldorf put together because he was just that kind of guy. Yeah, he could help people on their holidays. <laughs> but... Things do change, and by the first quarter of the 20th century, the center of glamour and esteem and commerce was actually between 42nd Street and Central Park. There were many, many hotels by this time that had borrowed from the Waldorf Astoria style that had opened up in that region. I think we've talked about the Plaza Hotel, Mm -hmm. just in Central Park South, the St. Regis, uh, right around the corner, the Astor the Hotel Astor, sure. The Hotel Astor over Times Square. The Peninsula, the Sherry Netherland. Yeah. Right. So I guess this giant hotel down um, on 34th Street seemed a little bit removed from all oh, of that sure. action. I mean, all the Jazz Age fun was happening up here far north. So by the late 1920s, it was something of a dowager. By the way, before we move on, we have an old show in our archives from 2007 on the Astors that gives a little bit more information on the older hotel and, of course, the fate of the Astors themselves. Right, including the fact that John Jacob Astor IV died on the Titanic in 1912 and that an investigation was held into the sinking of the Titanic right here at the old Waldorf Astoria. So back to our story. Society is moving farther uptown. So it was decided to sell off Mm-hmm. This hotel, sell it for the real estate. You know, after all, in September of 1928, groundbreaking had begun just nearby for the Chrysler building. On January 23rd, 1929, a New York Times headline said, quote, tentative skyscraper plans for Waldorf site are filed. And sure enough, 14 months later, the building would be demolished and construction would begin on what would become the Empire State Building. So the hotel would be demolished, the Empire State would be constructed in its place, Mm -hmm. but the hotel lives on. It does. It's not associated with the Astors, but rather with the Waldorf Astoria's manager named Lucius Boomer. Now, he was rather heartbroken. He Heartbroken was, why? Because he, he loved the style of the Waldorf. He thought it was the finest hotel. It was a little old-fashioned, but no other hotel could match it in terms of its quality of service and hospitality. So, well, he ended up purchasing the rights of the name for $1. Tom, you can't get a cup of coffee in this neighborhood <laughs> for the price that no. he paid this cost for, the, <laughs> for the Waldorf Astoria. Right. So he bought that name 
And in March of 1929, he would announce a new Waldorf would be constructed. So when they sold the old hotel and that land and it was demolished, they didn't have immediate plans to construct another one uptown? No, not at that particular time. There's all these great newspaper clippings, if you go back to the archives, of all these real estate sales, like for months and months. They're selling off rooms and all the stuff inside of it, but there were no immediate plans to then replace it and build a fresh Waldorf Astoria because the Astors, first of all, They had the Hotel Astor in Times Square, and they had other hotel endeavors in New York City. They didn't necessarily need this one, which was actually attached to this sort of old family feud that they had. Mm -hmm. So Boomer takes the name, and he looks to this plot of land that's north of Grand Central Mm -hmm. Terminal, a stretch of land, uh, several blocks that had been recently covered over because they had been exposed train yards. They were covered over and created enormous new real estate possibilities. Yes, this happened in the early 1900s when the Grand Central covered over those tracks and basically created what they considered a terminal city. The blocks just immediately north of Grand Central were immediately filled on either side of Park Avenue with office towers and hotels that would, of course, feed into Grand Central. So then Boomer, along with investors, including New York Central Railroad, which Mm -hmm. put in $10 million for the $40 million construction of this new hotel, chose this plot of land that's between 49th and 50th Streets and between Lexington Avenue and Park Avenue. And it would be here in the summer of 1929 that these investors would prepare to build this massive new luxury hotel. Of course, the summer of 1929 was kind of a risky time to be doing anything. (laughs) Yes. Because financial markets were already looking a little bit dodgy. There was a lot of construction throughout town that was in danger because of what would eventually, of course, become the stock market crash later that year. However, they would push forward, and one of the first steps in the construction of the hotel would be the demolition of the structures that were already there. Those included a power station that was built for the railroad itself and also kind of a a delivery service. Those would be wiped away. However, that power station would be serviceable by the train station through a platform downstairs. So in 1931, the new 47-story building would be constructed with more than 2,000 rooms at a cost of $40 million and designed in the Art Deco style by architects Schultz and Weaver. Now, it can be a little bit confusing, Greg, when you look at the Waldorf Mm -hmm. to even understand completely what's going on because it's a hotel right? Mm -hmm. Referred to sometimes as a transient hotel um, (laughs) for people passing through town Mm -hmm. and needing a place to stay for the night. But it's also a place of private residences. And some of those, you know, were rented for very long periods, for decades even. Which was the fashion of the day for many of these hotels in the early and mid 20th century. Now picture the exterior of the hotel. You and I went there yesterday Mm -hmm. at a cocktail. A cocktail. Picture the exterior. The first couple of floors are are big public spaces, right? And we'll get into those in a minute. Floors 5 to 17 served as guest rooms for these transient guests we were talking about. Floors 18 through 20 had club rooms for social clubs, society, Mm -hmm. you know, groups could meet. Functions. Floors 21 through 27 were small suites. And then floors 28 through 42 comprised the Waldorf Towers. That's where the setback happens. Mm-hmm. And the hotel shoots up 
to the 42nd floor. Those were reserved at the beginning. 300 residential suites were contained within those towers. It's a little bit hard to give precise numbers of rooms because the configurations would change over the years. All the renovations that happened, they'd combine them and they would divide them. Sure. Sometimes it's two bedrooms, sometimes it's five bedrooms. You know, it's just (laughs) endlessly confusing. And to this day, they're changed. Let's go inside here. Let's stroll through the lobby. What are we looking at? Well, if you enter from the Park Avenue side and you walk in and there's a big entrance foyer, if you will, there are some big social rooms up on the 50th Street side and to your right on the 49th Street side. And you walk up the grand staircase and you cross a main corridor today called Peacock Alley. Mm -hmm. So they brought that um, back from (laughs) the old, from the original and head into the main lobby. And there you'll be greeted by, among other things, the octagonal Waldorf clock, which was a fixture of the original hotel. It's a 4,000 pound bronze clock that was built for the 1893 World's Columbian Exhibition in Chicago. That, which we were checking out yesterday, is pretty striking. For a clock. Yes, with... um, (laughs) With bells every 15 minutes. Also in the lobby area is the Peacock Alley Bar and Restaurant, where we had a drink. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that features a Steinway piano that resident Cole Porter had up in his suite, which was number 33A, and at which he wrote many of you know uh, his popular American standards, including You're the Top, a song which includes a reference to the Waldorf salad. <laughs> Don't believe me, Greg? I've got it. Can you sing a bar? Can you hum a couple bars, please? <laughs> well, oh God, I'm getting so excited. I'm <laughs> dropping things. And you actually I'm, sat at the piano yesterday, I sat actually. at the piano. It was, mm-hmm. it was pretty cool. Uh, toward the end of the song, he says, you're the top. You're a Waldorf salad. You're the top. You're a Berlin ballad. Irving Berlin. Yeah. By the way, the punchline in the previous stanza is, you're the moon over Mae West's shoulder. I'm the nominee of the GOP. Oh. Yeah. Is, is the eggs Benedict in that song anywhere? No, it didn't. But a hot tamale made it in. A turkey dinner. Garbo's salary. But no, no eggs <laughs> Benedict. So Porter lived at 33A. Yes. Uh, he lived there for decades. And when he passed on, his suite was taken over by Frank Sinatra, who used the hmm. same suite as his New York home from 1979 to 1988. Getting, th- this is a bit of a messy tour. Sorry, it's just <laughs> that I get thrown off by Cole Porter's Porter, of course. piano over there. So we're still in the lobby. The registration front desk, concierge, shops and salons, you know, all about you on the main floor. There are other important rooms on that first floor, including the Empire Room, which we passed when we walked in. And this is a chandelier private um, event space that's just off the main entrance. And in the 1950s and 60s, this was the premier nightclub uh, in New York and home to incredible performances uh, by the likes of, say, Lena Horne and many others. Sonny and Cher had some of their first acts in New York City at the Empire Room. But you ain't seen nothing, Greg. Can we go upstairs? Well, can you just give me like a little like insight on what the whole place just looks like? Because it's Art Deco, but like it's unique in its style. Well, you mentioned Art Deco. Okay, I'm going to read a piece that was in the New York Times a week before it opened. This was big news. This was the city's newest luxury hotel that was opening. The tallest in the world. The tallest in the world. The tallest hotel in the world. But they were also working with the press to tease this, you know, big event before the public and get everybody excited. So here's a piece that was in the Times on September 27th, 1931. The hotel opened on October 1st. 
And this is just about the decoration. The headline was Hotel Decoration in the Grand Manor. The new Waldorf Astoria Hotel, which opens next Thursday, combines luxuriousness of appointments with comfort and decorative charm. Lobbies, dining rooms, and ballrooms show smart contemporary effects and beautiful period interpretations, and suites that range from a room and a bath to a dozen rooms, many baths, and a serving pantry have the individual attractiveness of a private home. And it goes on and on here for two pages, giving a tour and explaining the decoration and the modern decor of the new hotel. I found it interesting because the phrase that I didn't see was Art Deco, which you just Mm, used. And that's because Art Deco wouldn't be used really as a term until the 1960s. It just was modern. It was the new look, right? The new decorative arts. And especially in comparison to the decor and the style of the old Waldorf Astoria, which would have been a completely different looking building. Right. That was very old world. And now in the new building... It was deco throughout. You know, there were metalwork, these fanciful grills, great glasswork, lighting fixtures, thousands of cubic feet of marble that were imported from Belgium and Italy, a limestone facade on the whole place, chestnut wood panels on the walls. It was it was very modern. It looks like a 1930s art deco mm-hmm. film noir mm-hmm. set to us today. Well, even the lighting was technologically advanced for its day. and Oh, the, the lighting, the fact that they were using indirect lighting was news unto itself. Look, at this is an article um, from the Times on April 26, 1931. So from much earlier in the year, that's only concerned with the Waldorf lighting. Headline, Waldorf lighting. <laughs> uh, about how they were using indirect lights and they were hiding them inside vases and things in rooms uh, and bouncing light off the walls and the ceiling. I always look better in indirect lighting, just so you know. That's why the lights are dimmed down here. Is that why I can't read my notes? (laughs) But so, so take us upstairs. Well, probably the most important feature culturally at the Waldorf Astoria has been the Grand Ballroom. And this is, this has been the site of huge social events. This is a massive space that could fit more than 2,000 people in it, um, with four floors of loges and private balconies on the side, and in which there have been countless grand dinners, huge social events, charity balls, and other things that we've talked about in previous podcasts. For example, Guy Lombardo and his Royal Canadians ringing in the new year, which he did from 1960 until 1976. And on the same floor, there were other important banquet rooms like the Jade Room, the Astor Gallery, the Basildon Room, which was, which featured a giant chandelier hanging over her, a room that had been plucked from an 18th century country home in Berkshire, England. And by the way, all these rooms, it wasn't all fun and games in this room, as we'll talk about a little bit later. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but for right now, I mean, it's sort of <laughs> festive. festive. Stay in the festive mood. Rough crowd. (laughs) Up on the 19th floor was the legendary Starlight Room, which was a summer-only dining and dancing spot that had a retractable ceiling that could open up and reveal the stars. You could dance under the stars, Greg. Well, you have made it sound like the most glamorous place on Earth, so I can imagine that the most important people in the world will want to stay here when they're sweeping through New York City, right? Well, let's start with the President of the United States, even the President who opened the Waldorf on October 1st, 1931, Herbert Hoover, who addressed a crowd of invited folk 
The Waldorf had sent out 12,000 invitations for a preview the day before. Mm -hmm. 20,000 people showed up, twice as many as were invited. (laughs) Whoops. And the president welcomed them in a live broadcast from the White House. When he would be bumped out of the White House a year and a half later, he would actually take up residence in the Waldorf in 1933, and he would live there for the rest of his life. Wow, he did like it. And not just Hoover, every president following him would either stay here or live here, although it's reported that Jimmy Carter never actually spent the night. We should ask him about Mm, that. Next time I see him. So the Waldorf has always been associated with presidents because it is the place where they often stay when they're in town. Mm -hmm. Isn't there a great secret underneath the Waldorf story that is associated with the president? I think you're referring to Platform 61, Mm -hmm. a private railroad platform that hooks into the Grand Central Terminal complex. It's very difficult to get to the bottom of what's legend here and what's reality here. Remember, we talked about that power facility that had been there. Mm -hmm. This was a a platform to be used by that power facility. Well, when they knocked down the power plants and built the hotel, the platform was still way down below street level. It didn't disappear. So there are reports that this track and platform was used as far back as 1938 and was used later in 1944 by FDR when he purportedly gave a speech at the Waldorf Astoria and then took the elevator down to this private platform and was whisked away by a private train. However, even that um, report is somewhat disputed to a certain degree by different people who have looked into this, including a very thorough investigation by Joseph Brennan of Columbia University, who wrote an entire article that I encourage people to check out called Grand Central Terminal, the Waldorf Astoria Platform in his series of articles about abandoned stations. Very interesting, cast some doubt on the whole thing. But there is no doubt that the platform itself exists and is currently underneath the hotel. Absolutely. And another uh, great website to check out is a piece that Sam Huarin did on the website Atlas Obscura. He went down to the platform and photographed it. So you can see pictures of the platform of a special elevator that lifts up to the parking garage of the Waller Astoria and even an abandoned train that's down there in the station still. Wow. And this platform was also the site of a fashion show in, in 1948. In the 60s, Andy Warhol had an underground party here. And in 1970s, in the late 70s, there were reports of squatters living here on the platform. So it's seen a lot of action, even if maybe it did not see FDR. So that's the Waldorf up to World War II. So this all sounds rather glamorous, but Greg... The story of the Waldorf isn't all glamour and glitz. No, it will take a couple unsavory turns in the next part of our show. We'll get to the Waldorf story in the 50s and 60s and the modern era after the commercial break. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. 
take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. So, Tom... I believe you left us on a rather flattering light of the Waldorf Yes, story. indirect light is always flattering. <laughs> Very true. But I'm going to dig deep here into a couple of episodes that are perhaps a little bit more unpleasant, but are just indicative of, I mean, there's some thousands of things that are going on at the Waldorf over these decades. And here's some incidents that I, th- I think are important to know about the history. And we should also note that this is not an advertisement, unlike uh, Blue Apron and Squarespace. <laughs> right. The Waldorf, of course, has a complicated history. Yeah. Now, you left us off here at the end of World War II, right? Well, around that time, of course, began the so-called Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, which lasted until the 1990s. And many people were afraid that American life would be twisted and influenced by secret agents um, Mm -hmm. from the USSR. Now, the tool of government that was used to kind of combat against this was, at least in the early days, was the House Committee of Un-American Activities. You're talking about Joseph McCarthy and his famous panels? Actually, that happens a little bit later, although they're of the same type of witch hunts. These actually happened before Senator McCarthy. So naturally, HUAC for short, 
an early target for them was Hollywood and the concerns of a left-leaning industry having possible influence on American culture that might be influenced by the Soviets. So in October of 1947, they called up suspected Hollywood directors and writers to testify in front of a committee. This eventually led to the famous Hollywood 10, 10 Hollywood screenwriters and directors that were accused of these connections and were banned from working in Hollywood. The most famous one here being Dalton Trumbo and even New Yorker Samuel Ortiz, who had written Imitation of Life. Fascinating. How does how does the Waldorf play into this? Well, interestingly enough, just a few weeks later, on December 3rd of 1947, a very infamous meeting takes place at the Waldorf Astoria with some of the biggest executives in Hollywood, including Samuel Goldwyn and Louis B. Mayer. You have to consider if these guys are going to meet and they're not in Hollywood, this is the place they're going to meet because it's a, it's the most glamorous. It's a place that can accommodate all of these rich, important men. They gathered here to draft an assurance to the American government with special regard to these Hollywood 10. Today, we know this as the Waldorf Statement. And essentially, this was a promise that Hollywood would not hire these men. A quote from the statement, the infamous statement, Members of the Association of Motion Picture Producers deplore the action of the 10 Hollywood men who have been cited for contempt by the House of Representatives. We do not desire to prejudge their legal rights, but their actions have been a disservice to their employers and have impaired their usefulness in the industry. Unquote. I don't understand. Why did these Hollywood bigwigs agree to sign off on anything like this? Well, this is self-preservation on their part. And of course, Hollywood isn't exactly as left-leaning back then as we might imagine it. There were like a lot of conflicting parties here, and they didn't want the government digging into this and eventually cutting into their profits. So they decided at this particular point to be to, proactive. To be proactive with this statement, which which today we look back on as a sort of an ugly period in Hollywood history. Now, obviously, I'm not using this story to tarnish the Waldorf Astoria because it's a very passive player in this, but I only use this story to demonstrate already the profound importance as a venue for important meetings and for colossal historical events. And this would only grow more so into the later 20th century. Because it's not all censorship and blacklists here. There were also peace conferences yeah, that were being yeah. held at the Waldorf. Well, it's the it becomes the world's convention center because of a very key thing, which I'll get to in just a second. But oh. there's another exception to the rule that's a little bit more of a stain on the legacy of the Waldorf Astoria. And that is, unfortunately, it's part of a certain exclusion that many of the most famous hotels and restaurants in New York of this period were practicing. And that's an exclusion of guests and discriminatory policies of entertainers of people based on their skin color. Now, this would basically be African-Americans, Hispanics, but anyone who didn't sort of fit certain qualifications uh, for people walking through their lobbies. So they weren't allowed as guests. Were they allowed as entertainers? Sure, that there were some opportunities for We mentioned some, Lena Horne. Lena Horne, uh, Xavier Cugat, uh, Harry Belafonte, for instance, are big names that have performed the Waldorf Astoria. Ella. Ella Fitzgerald, but they weren't allowed in the lobby at certain periods of time, and they weren't allowed to take the main elevators. 
One of the most notorious of these tales, I think, was the time that the Olympic star Jesse Owens, after he had won his gold medals, had to ride the freight elevator to get to a reception that was being held in his honor on one of the upper floors. Mm. So he couldn't even walk through the, the guest of honor could not walk through the hotel. And that was 1936. Flash forward to today, the Jesse Owens International Athlete Trophy, which is given to the world's greatest athlete, is actually given in a banquet here at the Waldorf Astoria. What were the forces that changed all this? Well, there's kind of two changes that happened together that changed the culture a little bit of the Waldorf Astoria. Uh, the first one in 1949 came with the new management by the name of Conrad Hilton. Mm-hmm. Now, most know him as a hotel icon. His name stands for Fine Hotels. Some of you may know him as a character on Mad Men, and still others may know him as the great-grandfather of Paris Hilton. (laughs) But in any case, he's the great patriarch Mm -hmm. of the Hilton family. Right. So this comes into his collection right as the Hilton brand really begins taking off and becoming one of the most famous international chain of hotels. As a result, this solidifies the Waldorf's reputation even further. You have celebrities coming in and out of this, living here, people like Elizabeth Taylor and uh, Richard Burton. Perhaps the most famous series of photographs of the Waldorf Astoria were taken here in 1955 of when Marilyn Monroe lived here. And there were some famous portraits of her on the rooftop. And we should point out that Hilton took over the management of the Waldorf in 1949, but would about 50 or 60 years later outright buy Buy. Mm -hmm. the hotel. Right. And would become a Hilton property. Now, even a bigger influence on the culture of the Waldorf Astoria was the founding of the United Nations in 1945. The following year, they begin to have meetings up at Lake Success, New York, and the official UN headquarters opened on the East River in 1952. It would kind of become the unofficial hotel of the United Nations. How so? Well, even by 1947, the U.S. government began leasing a room for their ambassador. And in fact, Tom, as I believe you know this, uh, rooms on the 42nd floor today remain the official residence of the U.S. ambassador to this very day. That's right. Nearly every ambassador has stayed there, including recent occupants like Madeleine Albright and John Bolton. And today, Samantha Power uh, lives there with her husband and her children. And during the general conference, uh, they basically take over two entire floors of the Waldorf. So it's not just Mm -hmm. the the UN ambassador's suite. It's much bigger than that. So much international business goes on to this day that their ambassadors and their entourages staying here at the Waldorf Astoria. Now, I could focus on hundreds of little international intriguing tales here, but I'm only going to focus on just a couple. One of them is an extraordinary transaction which took place here in June of 1954. The sale of what many would consider some of the most important documents in the world. Now, in 1947, a shepherd discovered ancient documents in clay jars in the Palestinian territory of the West Bank, including four particular scrolls that then managed, I'm not going to get into it right now, through various transactions to somehow make it to New York in 1954. The possessor of these particular scrolls did an extraordinary thing. He put an ad in the Wall Street Journal under the headline in the classifieds, Four Dead Sea Scrolls for Sale. 
Today, he could just put it on eBay or Craigslist. Oh, right. Exactly. I'd love to see ancient scrolls in my eBay shortlist here. Sure. Well, coincidentally, this came to the attention of a man named Yigail Yadin, who was a former officer in the Israeli military and was in New York in his role as an archaeologist. He realized that this was something truly valuable and had heard of other such documents. And these documents, of course, as you may have guessed right now, are the Dead Sea Scrolls. He set up a meeting here at the Waldorf Astoria. I mean, I just am picturing this in such a cloak and dagger kind of way, even with a dramatic Bernard Herrmann soundtrack in the background. Oh, sure, yeah. And so these four scrolls exchanged hands for a quarter of a million dollars. And so what did they do once they struck this deal? What did they do with, with the scrolls? Well, as luck would have it, there was a chemical bank connected mm-hmm. to the Waldorf. Now, that's the com- the company that became Chase. You know, I was a chemical Chase bank. Chase would gobble up those chemicals, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the scrolls themselves were kept in a vault. Well, that story certainly checks the box for international intrigue. Mm-hmm. What about a little more glamour? Well, for the glamour, but we want to stay international, right? So, Absolutely. So... Let's go, Tom, and dressed up in your finest tux to the April in Paris Ball, which was a celebration of French culture in the United States that was a series of annual balls that had a French theme to it. Oh, that sounds great. So it held every April? Well, the first one was called the Paris Birthday Ball. And it was in 1951, and that was celebrating the 2000th anniversary of Paris, essentially. Worthy celebration. So, but it was such a successful party, they made it an annual event. Except that even though it's called April in Paris, because that's a, a zingy, glamorous name, the party was actually in October. Uh-huh. I guess the social calendar was was more open in October. Oh, yeah, of course. And it was easier to get some space in the ballroom by that time because there were a lot of d- different kinds of balls that were happening in April. Now, this was all put Everybody to- has their balls in <laughs> April. Of course, naturally. The Bowery Boys ball is in April. Don't you remember? <laughs> um, now, this was all put together by the Waldorf Astoria's Claude Philippe, who was the hotel's banquet manager. Each year, the ball would have... I know you're going to like this. Historical tableau and ornate fashions from French designers and, of course, traditional French garb. This event kind of pulled in major celebrities who both performed and just attended in in their utmost glamour. Stars like Marlena Dietrich and Audrey Hepburn. And political figures, even like JFK and the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Who lived there at the Waldorf. mm -hmm. Um, And it wasn't just fun and games, though. This was a major charity event. Yes, it was charitable, which is part of the reason it drew so much money and drew all these big celebrities. And who was there to kind of capture all of these celebrities for the newspapers? None other than one of New York's most famous gossip columnists. Elsa Maxwell, um, who sort of was the kind of reigning doyen of these balls, a kind of personality whose ring needed to be kissed, I guess, to move ahead through New York's cafe society. Elsa was a gossip columnist Mm -hmm. in in an era when people across the country read the gossip columns out of New York. Yeah, I mean, she was very key to, of course, promoting these celebrities, but, you know, to be more altruistic, to, like, get the news of this charity out there. And through all of this, it just made the Waldorf Astoria look all the more glamorous. 
And I should add, by the way, in 1962, the Waldorf Astoria hosted Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at a banquet to honor Jackie Robinson, who that year became the very first black baseball player inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. As we move into the 60s and 70s and 80s, we clearly don't have time to go through all of the notable events and the banquets that were held at Mm -hmm. the Waldorf Astoria, but there were there were many. We have infamous tales of the who behaving poorly <laughs> and knocking the hinges off their door when they got locked out of their room. Oh, I'm sure there was a lot of inelegant behavior throughout the years in all these rooms. It wasn't Probably all hushed by <laughs> yeah. the management mm-hmm. management and the concierge. It's not on the official history on the website. Oh no. The hotel remained a place for politics in the 1970s. There were peace conferences and negotiations focused on the the Middle East that were held in the hotel in 1974. In 1975, Yasser Arafat stayed in the hotel. In the 1980s, the Waldorf's interior underwent a $150 million renovation that lasted into the early 90s, when in 1993, New York City made the exterior of the hotel a landmark. Hmm. Today, the hotel has three restaurants. Now, back in the heyday, let's say in the 1940s, the hotel had nine restaurants. There was mm-hmm. a gentleman's lounge and restaurant that was on the on its northeast corner. There was a great barber shop, too, for men on the, on the southeast corner. But there were nine. Today, there are just three places to eat and drink in the hotel. In addition to the more than 1,400 guest rooms today, there are luxury suites that are named after previous guests who we've already talked about. Like Cole Porter. There's a Cole Porter mm-hmm. suite. There's a Churchill suite. There's a MacArthur suite. And the most famous of them all, the presidential suites uh, on the 35th floor, which is furnished in a way that echoes the decor of the White House and includes some prized possessions of presidents past, including JFK's rocking chair. Wow. Did you know that JFK had a rocking chair? Hoover, as we said, lived in this suite for 30 years until his death in 1964. At the same time, Dwight Eisenhower lived in the hotel until he died in 1969, and his his widow, Jean, stayed in the hotel until she passed away in 2000. You mentioned earlier the U.S. representative to the U.N.'s residence up on the 42nd floor let's say the future is somewhat uncertain because in 2014 China's Anbang Insurance Group bought the Waldorf for $1.95 billion, which is the most ever paid for any hotel anywhere. Yeah, I see where this is going. Right. And even though Hilton uh, signed a contract that they would stay on to operate the hotel for the next hundred years, the new owners announced just this month, Greg, in Mm -hmm. July of 2016 that they plan to close the hotel to convert 1,000 of the rooms into condos. They're planning to do a $1 billion gut renovation of giant sections of the hotel. There's still a lot of information we're waiting to hear, like which rooms, which tower, which thousand rooms, what about the public spaces, what about the grand ballroom, what about these great banquet rooms and the meeting rooms. But this kind of thing has already happened in New York with like the Plaza and the Chelsea Hotel. So it's just that the change has come to the Waldorf. And in this case, you know, the exterior, like we said, has been protected. However, none of these interior spaces that are pristine examples of 1930s Art Deco style, 
none of these interiors are protected. None of the elevator doors, none of the iron grill work, none of it. I mean, this is the kind of place that to this day you could imagine Greta Garbo in a thick white fur coat strolling through the lobby. Like it's I still- think we saw her. <laughs> it's a it's a time capsule. Yeah. So we encourage anybody who would like to get involved with this to visit the website of the Historic District Council. That's hdc.org. They are fighting to landmark and protect some of the, you know, the most important interior spaces here at the Waldorf. They don't want, as they say, quote, the deco to check out of the Waldorf. (laughs) In the meantime, if you have a chance when passing through Midtown, swing into the lobby and check out some of these Notable features for yourself. You never know when the doors are going to close and something could be removed. And and really, let those interior spaces take you back in time. For pictures of the glamorous years and some more recent events at the Waldorf Astoria, check out the blog BoweryBoysHistory.com. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter. We'd like to thank our supporters who have joined us on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys with a small monthly donation. This support has allowed us to produce a new show every two weeks. Uh, We couldn't be doing this without you. Thank you so much for your support. And we have all kinds of extra little goodies for our patrons to download. Now, we've been out promoting our book, The Adventures in Old New York. And many of you have the book already. And if you don't, you can get it at your local bookstore or on Amazon or on Barnes & Noble. But we want to give shout outs to three establishments that have hosted us for events in the past few weeks. And they've just been incredibly warm and welcoming. Gracious. Yeah. So that would be the General Society. Society of Mechanics and Tradesmen, who have a wonderful centuries-old headquarters in Midtown that you should check out sometime when it's open. On 44th Street. We'd like to thank Fish's Eddie, which is a wonderful homeware store on 19th Street and Broadway. Swing in there. You can also not only get some great values in there, some fun little kitschy, even historically-themed uh, houseware and glassware and artifacts because they've rescued you know mm-hmm. old collections of housewares and dishes and plates and mugs and things from restaurants from eras long gone we had an event there and on top of just having us do a reading they were also gracious enough to produce a Bowery Boys branded pizza topping and it's actually <laughs> really 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 good I've had it like about two or three times since we had our event last week you've had pizza two or three times Okay, so I'm not like the healthiest eater in the world. It's it's stress eating, you know. Oh, I mean, it's, it's, right, it's, sure. it's lots of stuff going on. But um, the pizza topping tastes really good, and you can pick that up at Fish's Eddie. And finally, a big shout out and thank you to another fish. This one being Kettle of Fish, which is a West Village institution, a, a quote unquote dive bar, but one with such a rich history, especially a literary history. And we got to join that history by having our book party there at uh, Kettle of Fish just a few weeks ago on a Thursday night. And the people who worked there could not have been more kind. And it was just a exciting evening. So thank you very much to Kettle of Fish. And we encourage everyone to go down there and have a beer and ask the bartender for some history. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.
Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.